I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles for Old Testament Scripture reading from Isaiah chapter 9. We'll only look at two verses this morning. But here the prophet Isaiah foretells of the work of Christ, the very thing that he would establish as our great king, that this child born of a virgin descended from David's stock would be given a kingdom and a government that would establish peace, that would extend throughout the whole world. That kingdom, of course, visibly seen here on earth is found in the church Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Notice the language there that we even see repeated in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. A son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. and His name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of the increase of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now turning to John chapters 14 and 16 for our New Testament reading, here is Christ with his disciples on the night of his betrayal. As he stands with them and speaks of the fact that the kingdom is about to be inaugurated at long last by his own death on the cross, he speaks of the very gift he has come to give his people. John chapter 14, verse 27, and then John chapter 16, verse 33. This is our Savior speaking, saying this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace, do I give to you. (coughs) Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And now finally, considering our sermon text this morning, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, that the fruit produced by the Spirit is peace. And against such things as peace, there is no law. Please join me as we ask the Lord to illuminate our hearts to understand what Paul means here by this. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word as you have promised to give peace, we ask that as we give careful attention to your word, you would cause us to know the peace of Christ. And so glorify you as your kingdom expands, as you rule and reign even in our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. On September 1938, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain ended up flying to Germany to negotiate a peace treaty between the German Empire and several other nations of Europe. 
So over the previous two years, the leader of the German regime, Adolf Hitler, had defied and violated the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles was the treaty that brought an end to the First World War. Over the past two years, Hitler had defied these openly by sending troops into the Rhineland when it was supposed to remain a demilitarized zone to ensure that peace would last throughout Europe. And in violation, he had also annexed Austria, claiming this kingdom as part of his new regime. And now, Hitler was demanding that the nation of Czechoslovakia cede the northwest region known as the Sudetenland and had threatened global war if he would not get his way. So Neville Chamberlain led a coalition of diplomats to meet with Adolf Hitler. Diplomats from France, Italy, and Britain gathering together at the so-called Munich Conference to hash it out with Hitler to try to establish peace. And what we see is by the end of the conference, Britain, France, and Italy under Neville Chamberlain, had ceded to nearly every demand that Adolf Hitler had made on the condition of this one promise that Hitler had given, that if you give me the Sudetenland, if you give me northwest Czechoslovakia, I will never demand anything else ever again. Neville Chamberlain returned back to Britain and proclaimed, made it onto the front pages of the newspaper, saying, we have achieved peace in our time. One year later, the world was at war. I think we all recognize that there is a great difference between peace and appeasement. There's a gulf that stands between true, between true peace and pacification. True peace and those counterfeit forms of peace. True peace removes the threat of terror. It brings an end to hostilities. It ushers in tranquility and stability for a society well-ordered. And yet we all recognize it. Those terms of false peace whereby wickedness continues to reign. Where the threat of violence hangs overhead like a sword ready to drop. These false pretenses to peace try to convince you that everything is okay when everything is anything but okay. The Lord himself had warned to the, to the prophets of old with the nation of Israel that they were to avoid those who proclaimed peace in our time when there was in fact no peace. Jeremiah describes it somewhat like this, like we might paraphrase it, slapping a band-aid on a cancer victim. It might bring some type of psychological or therapeutic relief to the, to, the, to the individual, but provides no true healing. It is actually more destructive in the long run. And yet what we find here in Scripture is that Christ has come to establish true peace. Not like the peace that we see with governmental treaties and ceasefires. Rather, Christ has come to bring true peace and lasting peace. Peace of a totally different order. Peace, not simply with your neighbor, not simply peace uh, with a rival country, but peace with God. And with it, peace of mind. 
I'd like us to consider three things this morning. First, we'll consider peace from God, as God Himself is the source of peace. Secondly, we'd like us to consider peace of conscience. In other words, what is the effect of this peace that we have with God? And finally, I'd like us to consider consider pursuing peace. What is the path that the Christian is called to walk now that we have been reconciled to a holy God? So peace from God, peace of conscience, and pursuing peace. See, the Christian faith entails a message of peace. Every Sunday from beginning to end is a series, a service that is enveloped by peace. Was the first thing that the minister says? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a herald, a divine proclamation that the hostility between God and man has been effected through the blood of Christ. How is it that every service ends? The great benediction. May the Lord have his face shine upon you and give you his peace. Central to the whole Old Testament promise, if we were to give a Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament, it would be this the arrival of the kingdom of God. It is the sum and substance of Christ's own message. You read Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, as Jesus is baptized and begins going from city to city and village to village and town to town, what is it that he proclaims? Repent, for the kingdom of God has finally arrived. A kingdom that Paul himself describes as a kingdom that does not consist merely in food or in drink, but more substantively in righteousness, joy, and of peace. And yet we find in Scripture that this peace is a peace unlike the peace that the world gives. You study historical records. You read historical narratives. One of my favorite things to do in my free time. We find that every peace treaty eventually falls apart, be it from mutual distrust between two parties, or pacts made under false pretenses, or new alliances that are forged, new situations that arise, new grievances that are aired. Peace is not everlasting. Longest lasting peace that we see to befall uh, uh, the continent of Europe lasts 99 years. Congress, the Congress of Vienna in 1815 to 1914. For nearly 100 years, everybody thought, this is it. We've arrived. The Cold War comes to an end, the early 90s. What was it that was proclaimed? We have, we have made it to the end of history. Will there ever be another war? And surely we find that due to human nature, wars continue to arise over and over again. Even the best peace treaties are fragile and frail. And yet Christ tells the church, the peace that I give to you is not like a peace that the world gives. This peace is everlasting. The prophets of old foretold of the work of the Messiah, the work that he would establish as our great mediator, as our prophet, our priest, and our king. The one who would establish peace peace between God and man. The whole theme of Isaiah, I know Isaiah is a thick book and at times could be confusing, but is read and speaks with such clarity 
concerning the person and work of Christ than the early church, the book of Isaiah, was often referred to as the fifth gospel. Here Isaiah speaks of the child who would be born of a virgin, who would inherit the heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that would expand, that would defeat the nations, and so establish a regime of everlasting peace, not only, not merely between man and man, but peace between God and man. You know, we have to ask ourselves, how is it that peace is established? Is peace established by having bigger tanks and guns, bombs, louder voices, a stronger military? The Bible hints in the Psalms and Isaiah and Romans and elsewhere what it is for peace to be established. The most basic requirement is this. There must be an establishment of righteousness. Peace is the fruit of righteousness. Isaiah himself says this in chapter 32, that the effect of righteousness will be peace and tranquility and trust. See, when wickedness abounds, who can you trust? When wickedness abounds, there is no peace. Wickedness and and evil is the great arch enemy to peace. And so for peace to exist, there must be righteousness to reckon with those things that would disturb the peace So our law enforcement are referred to as those who keep the peace. Established by God is a very good thing, according to Romans 13. And yet we see that the great problem with the human race is the human condition, that man, since the fall, is by nature continually at war with God. Man, according to Genesis, from birth has set his thoughts on evil continually. He lusts after those things that are contrary to the Spirit, Paul says. Where man by nature walks according to the pattern of a world hostile to God and are therefore objects of God's wrath. Where there is no peace between God and man, so long as man continues to declare war against a great and a holy God. This is why Paul begins the great letter to the church of Rome by saying this, the righteousness and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all men. Judgment is coming because the Lord is coming to establish righteousness in the earth. As king, Christ holds the right to pronounce judgment on the whole human race for its rebellion could sign the world to everlasting wrath. It's frightening news, and yet it's the great thing that Paul continually refers and turns the hearts and the ears of his hearers towards, that there is a day in which sin will finally be reckoned with once and for all, that righteousness would be established, that peace may flourish unhindered. Think of the great day of joy that would be brought When the Lord returns and he judges the wicked who have gotten away with everything in this life. It is great news for the righteous. The final day of the Lord. And yet at the same time, I think we all quake because it is terrible news at the same time. Because as the Bible attests, there is in fact none righteous at least none righteous of his own accord. What can we do 
to flee from the wrath to come. And this is where the gospel is such great news. It is the great shining diamond against a dark backdrop that God has made full provision for sin. God had sent His Son to put an end to the hostility between God and man. To establish a way of salvation to deter His everlasting wrath. This God has done by appointing Christ not only to be our great King, but also to be our great High Priest. The one who would offer up a sacrifice, not of another uh, bull or a goat, is the great priest who would offer up himself as a great sacrifice once and for all to deal fully with sin once and for all to avert the just wrath of a holy God against the human race. It's one of the things that we see typified in the Old Testament by Moses. I know the book of Leviticus can be a very difficult book to read through. I was talking with somebody this past week who's been trying to make their way through Leviticus and and, and admits it's it's difficult. It's probably one of the most difficult books to get through and understand. And yet central to it, I think, speaks of two points. That God hates sin. And yet that God loves sinners so much that He has appointed a means whereby His wrath may be expiated. Where His wrath might be removed, and that is through the sacrifice of a sinless substitute. When you read through Leviticus and you see the various types, there are five major types of sacrifices, they all culminate and lead to one major offering. What is that offering? It is the peace offering. Where after the sinner has made sacrifice, or the priest having made the sacrifice on behalf of the sinner, the sinner now gets to enjoy a restoration of fellowship with the Holy God. He now gets to eat in the presence of the Lord. And when Isaiah foretells the work of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, that word for Messiah in Greek is the word Christos, Christ. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Or the Christ is a title that speaks of the work that Christ has come to accomplish. Isaiah depicts Christ as a spotless lamb who would die quietly. And because he is sinless, he dies bearing our sin that we might be made whole. That word for wholeness there is shalom, it's peace. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds we are healed. It's the great story of the Gospel. My sin for Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness is now imputed to our account. And it is not earned. It is not merited. It is something that is only received by faith and faith alone. You confess before the Lord, I'm a great sinner. My sins are great. Please forgive me. I trust in Christ and what He has done for me. The Lord says, now what sins? As far as the east is from the west, so have I removed your sins from you. The great hostility that stood between man and God is now removed so that there is now 
peace. The Christian is declared righteous. He has been justified before the throne of the living God. And now that righteousness has been established, there can be peace. As Paul himself writes, Romans chapter 5, Therefore, because we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a great peace. One that is not the result of human effort or political sanction, of bribery, of payoffs, of mutual compromises to to reach some type of ceasefire. Rather, this is a covenant of peace established wholly by the living God. Where he says, your sins are dealt with. Christ bore every ounce of God's wrath on on the cross, so you would not taste an ounce of God's wrath. That friendship can be restored. It's the very thing that the table of the Lord signifies. Because sin has been dealt with, we are restored to friendship with the living God. It is a gospel of peace, where true peace comes through only one source, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul himself says, Christ himself is our peace. He's the great mediator between God and man. He has come and he has preached peace to those far and to those near through the heralds and the ministers of the word, which is why Isaiah and Paul will both say how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who publish peace and bring the glad tidings of happiness, publishing salvation, saying to the church that your God reigns. So as our prophet where our prophet speaks peace to us as our priest, where peace has been made for us. And as our king, where peace has been established by righteousness, Christ comes in his threefold office and secures peace as our great prophet, priest, and king. It is a peace that is everlasting and it comes from God. And because it comes from God, it establishes peace with God. This is a real objective peace. It is not a peace that that rises and falls, that waxes and wanes with the coming tides of your own emotional feelings. It is a real peace that is established. And because it is an objective peace, it brings with it what we may call real subjective benefits. Leading to our second point that it brings with us peace of conscience. The Bible tells us, as we've considered, God is the source of peace. And so to rebel against God, even in our thoughts, and loving those things that are forbidden, and thinking about those things, and choosing to do those things that transgress God's moral law, is to set our mind on enmity against God. That's why Paul says it is the natural man who sets his affections, who lusts after things that are contrary to the desires of the Spirit. B.B. Warfield, who in in my estimation is the, the greatest American theologian of the 20th century, he describes the conscience as this. He says the conscience is that voice of God within man proclaiming war because man knows he is not at peace 
with God. That your conscience continually testifies against you, saying, remember what you have done. Look at what you are doing now. These are things that do not accord with God's holiness. Romans chapter 2 says that God has implanted in the heart of every man a knowledge of him. That man, although he knows what is right and wrong, he so sears and violates his conscience. And in doing so, violates God's holy law. His conscience becomes a great pain and a terror. Our consciences condemn us. How many of us have spent nights grieving past sins or trying to excuse past sins, trying to tell ourselves it is all okay and justifying ourselves? That is the very opposite of peace of conscience. The psalmist himself says this, when I sinned, this is Psalm chapter 32, when I, when I sinned and I refused to confess my sins, when I continued trying to hide them, what happened? My bones began to rot away. I felt like a man whose strength was dried up by the summer's heat. Such is the nature of the conscience when sin weighs heavy upon it. And yet, David says, when I confessed my sins, you forgave them. And you restored to me life and health and peace. Sin is wearying. It burdens the conscience. Sin does not clock out at 5 o'clock, Monday through Friday. But it continues to impress upon the soul where the only thing you can do is either pretend it doesn't exist or flee the things to try to drown out the voice of conscience. And yet the good news that we have in Christ is that there's a better solution. That there's a real peace of conscience that can truly come by confessing your sins and resting assured in the great promise that the Lord will forgive you. To those weary and heavy laden, here's a Savior who comes promising to give rest and peace. Those who preach a false peace contend that there is nothing to worry about. This is the problem with old theological liberalism. The whole idea is this kind of therapeutic, feel-good morality to help convince you that everything really is okay, and yet the gospel is predicated on this reality that things are not okay unless you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is not found in convincing yourself that things will get better. Salvation comes through only one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who makes full provision for sin, the one who freely says, come to me and I will take your sin off of you and I will clothe you in my own righteousness. Our sins are great and terrible. We cannot avoid that, but we have a Savior who is even greater, one who is kind and merciful, one who has promised to give peace to troubled consciences. 
Not just for the unbeliever, but even for the believer. You know, we're called, as the Lord himself tells us that we're to pray daily, forgive us our debts. Why would he tell us to pray that thing daily were it not for the fact that he knew that we would continue to sin daily? It's the great benefit of the gospel. That whether you're a new believer or you've been a believer your entire life, the same promise holds. Come to me and I will give you rest. We have a Savior who is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to restore that fellowship that has been severed by sin. Mature Christians need to hear this as much as the unbeliever, that the Lord, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us as our iniquities deserve. For as far as the east is from the west, so far does our Savior remove our sins from us. The gospel of peace comes and brings peace so that when our consciences condemn us, when our hearts condemn us, First John tells us God is greater than our hearts who continues to promise to bring the great benefit, the assurance of God's love that is found not in our own works, but in trusting Christ and Christ alone. Paul calls this a peace that surpasses understanding. It is a peace that is not rocked by the tribulations of this life. Paul prays that the God of hope would fill us with all peace through faith in Christ. And Paul commands us to let the peace of Christ rule and reign in our hearts. If your consciences are rocked by sin, be it present sins or past sins, The solution is Christ. If your conscience is wearied by past sins and you've confessed them, then remember the gospel. that Those sins are forgiven in Christ. If you're continuing to revel in sin and your consciences are troubled, good. It's what your conscience is supposed to do. Don't expect to have an easy conscience while you continue to live in unrepentant sin. The solution is to turn from your sins and to know that Christ is kind and that He promises to give you peace. The man whose mind is stayed on the Lord, Isaiah says, is kept by the Lord in perfect peace. So that when we abide in Christ and set our affections and our thoughts on Christ, the Spirit calms our hearts. It is a fruit of the Spirit's work so that you can be at peace. Because the Lord has forgiven you of your sins. And yet the Scriptures do not stop there and say, okay, now that you are at peace, you have have an easy conscience, you can go do whatever you want. Scripture takes it one step further, leading us to our final point. As we are now called to pursue peace, with others around us. Ephesians chapter 2 says that Christ himself is our peace, as he has established peace between God and man, and yet he he has not only established peace between God and man, he has also come to establish between man and man. 
Christ himself is our peace, dividing or destroying that dividing wall of his hostility that exists between men. And so now the Christian is called to pursue peace. Psalm 34, 1 Peter 3, Romans 14. We're called to pursue peace with others. Peace, not pacification, not calling us to be a bunch of Neville Chamberlains to do whatever it takes to let some manipulator continue to use you as a doormat and give kind of feigned repentances towards you to continue treating you awfully. The Scripture does call us to pursue a real peace, not pacification, not appeasement. Jesus does not simply say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He says, blessed are the peacemakers in which righteousness has to be established and sin has to be really and truly dealt with. So the question is, how, how do we pursue a real peace that is not simply a ceasefire? The Scripture speaks of a proactive way of pursuing peace. How are we to do so? Well, it's already been modeled for us in the gospel. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that sets the paradigm. That we're not supposed to sit on our laurels and say, well, that is on that person. If he wants to get right, then he needs to come to me first. No, Jesus says to pursue peace. To be proactive in peacemaking. Pursuing peace is not an option, just as Christ pursued us when we were sinners. Christ could have easily just sat on his throne in heaven and said, let's wait for sinners to come find me, and then we'll talk about maybe establishing some type of ceasefire. No, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and this sets the model. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says what? To bless those and to pray for those who persecute you. To do so in wisdom, knowing what they're doing, but also that there's a call that, that our, our task before us is peace. The weapons that we fight, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, are not against flesh and blood, but they're against spiritual powers in high places. So we're called to peacekeeping and peacemaking. Strive for peace with all, as Hebrews says, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord doesn't mean we will always be successful, but it does mean we should try, right? We are to pursue peace when we have wronged others. That requires great, great humility. Painful conversations. Remember Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 14? Here's a man who has heard the gospel from a distance, and now he wants to, to meet with Jesus as so he climbs, as we learned in, in vacation Bible school, as he climbs the little sycamore tree, and he shouts to Christ, inviting, wanting to meet with Christ. When he finally gets that opportunity, what does he say? He says, I, he's, he's a tax collector, he's an IRS agent, he says, all the people that I have committed fraud against, I've gone to every single one of them, and I have made amends. Can you imagine how difficult those conversations would be to approach every person and say, all, all the ways that I've wronged you, the heinous ways, and just like the small sins, the big ones. Remember in high school when I was the big bully? I made fun of you. Remember the way in which we despised you and excluded you? Please forgive me. That's real repentance. 
It's not just a a feigned general, oh, I'm sorry vaguely for things I've done in the past. But it's seeking to make amends. That is what it looks like to pursue peace. It takes great humility, a lot of painful conversations, and it doesn't mean that everybody will forgive you. But it doesn't let you off the hook for seeking their forgiveness and asking for forgiveness. And yet Scripture goes even further. We are not only to pursue others whom we have wronged, we are also to pursue others who have wronged us. That requires long-suffering as well. And even biting our tongue. To go to somebody and say, you know what, you've wronged me. Runs a great risk of them going, no, I haven't. What are you talking about? It requires forbearance. I think one of the most difficult things a Christian could do is to maintain the posture of having a readiness and a willingness to forgive when the person who has sinned against you refuses to admit any wrongdoing. How easy it is to get bitter during that time to say, how, how I long to be restored, but I don't think we can be restored until the sin is actually truly dealt with. How easy it would be to get self-righteous or to grow bitter to maintain that posture towards somebody and say, no, I'm not going to pretend that there isn't a gap between us. I want that gap to be closed. I want reconciliation to be made. But certain things have to be addressed first. You know, we have this, this tendency, I think, according to human nature, to do two things in the midst of conflict, either fight or flight. Moses talks about this in Leviticus chapter 19. Leading up to the great command to love your neighbor as yourself, What does he say in the verses prior to it? You shall not take vengeance out on your neighbor. That's fight. You shall not hold a grudge in your heart and say nothing. That's flight. You shall not go around slandering him behind his back. That is a fight in flight. It is the the work of cowardice. He says, but rather than doing those three things, what shall you do? You shall reason frankly with your neighbor. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's why Paul speaks of tr- speaking the truth together, one uh, another, t- speaking the truth in love, one to another. Jesus says, if you're going to bring your offering uh, for the collection plate, you remember not simply that you have something against somebody else, but then you remember, oh no, so I, I just remember somebody has something against me. Jesus says, before you even put your money in the offering plate, stop and pursue reconciliation first. It's a proactive pursuit of peace. This is why Jesus says, blessed are not simply the peacekeepers, though that's good, but blessed are the peacemakers. We are called to pursue peace. Again, we might not be successful, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. I think this leads us to our last thing as we close out. And this is Paul's point here in Galatians 5. Peace is not against the law. God has come to give glad tidings of peace. It comes from God. It is a peace that is greater than the world offers. By this peace, the Spirit produces tranquil hearts and peaceful consciences. And yet, I think our natural tendency is to keep peace at that, the benefits that it extends towards me. And yet, when somebody sins against us, we fail to show that same long-suffering and kindness and patience that Christ has shown towards us. And so what do we do? We become self-righteous when wronged. 
And in some feigned sense of moral superiority, we, tall, we seek to call down fire from heaven on every Tom, Dick, and Harry who disagrees with us. And we think that acting in such a manner is a sign of spiritual maturity. Now, contrary, that runs here to the cross. Where Paul is looking and saying, it is love that is not against the law. So we considered last week joy. It's not illegal to be joyful. But here, peacemaking, that's not illegal as well. In fact, it is in the pursuit of peace and the attempt to be reconciled to others. Here we find that we're beginning to learn what it looks like really to walk and fulfill God's law. Might I suggest suggests this, that Paul is calling us to pursue peace as a fruit of the Spirit. Not pacification, not appeasement, but we are called to pursue a real and lasting peace. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, and live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you all. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word this morning, and we ask that you would give us the wisdom to be peacemakers, that we would pursue peace and reconciliation, and, the, and those relationships where peace is not able to be established, that you would give us hearts of kindness, willing to forbear and to undergo great loss to leave the door open, so to speak, that by your Spirit you would work in their hearts uh, that one day reconciliation might be effected. We ask these things that they would be done to the glory of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.